I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, Use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today, and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all my audiobooks after completion here for €5. It is one of the easiest ways to support me in turning this not just from a hobby, but into my full-time job. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Chapter 22 The Procession Before Hester Prynne could call together her thoughts and consider what was practicable to be done in this new and startling aspect of affairs, the sound of military music was heard approaching along a contiguous street. It denoted the advance of the procession of magistrates and citizens on its way towards the meeting house, where, in compliance with a custom thus early established and ever since observed, Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale was to deliver an election sermon. Soon the head of the procession showed itself, with a slow and stately march, turning a corner and making its way across the marketplace. First came the music. It comprised of a variety of instruments, perhaps imperfectly adapted to one another, and played with no great skill, but yet attaining the great object for which the harmony of drum and clarion addressed itself to the multitude that of imparting a higher and more heroic air to the scene of life that passes before the eye. Pearl at first clapped her hands, but then lost for an instant the restless agitation that had kept her in communal effervescence throughout the morning. She gazed silently, and seemed to be borne upward like a floating seabird along the long heaves and swells of sound. But she was brought back to her former mood by the shimmer of sunshine on the weapons and bright armour of the military company, which followed after the music and formed the honorary escort of the procession. This body of soldiery, which still sustains a corporate existence, and marches down from past ages with an ancient and honourable fame, was composed of no mercenary materials. Its ranks were filled with gentlemen, who felt the stirrings of martial impulse, and sought to establish a kind of college of arms, where, as in an association of the Knights Templar, they might learn the science, and, so far as peaceful existence would teach them, the practices of war. The high estimation then placed upon the military character might be seen in the lofty port of each individual member of the company. Some of them, indeed, 
by their services of the Low Countries and on the fields of European warfare had fairly won their title to assume the name and pomp of soldiership. The entire array, moreover, clad in burnished steel, with plumage nodding over their bright motions, had a brilliancy of effect which no modern display can aspire to equal. And yet the men of civil eminence, who came immediately behind the military escort, were better worth a thoughtful observer's eye. Even in outward demeanour they showed a stamp of majesty that made the warrior's haughty stride look vulgar, if not absurd. It was an age when what we call talent had far less consideration than now, but the massive materials which produced stability and dignity of character a great deal more. The people possessed by hereditary write the quality of reverence, which, in the descendants, if it survived at all, exists in a smaller proportion, and with a vastly diminished force in the selection and estimate of public men. The change may be for good or ill, and is partly, perhaps, for both. In that old day, the English settler, on these rude shores, having left king, nobles, and all degrees of awful rank behind, while still the faculty and necessity of reverence were strong in him, bestowed it on the white hair and venerable brow of age, on long-tried integrity, on solid wisdom, and sad-coloured experience, on endowments of that grave and weighty order which gives the idea of permanence, and comes under several general definitions of respectability. These primitive statesmen, therefore, Bradstead, Endicott, Dudley, Bellingham, and their compeers, who were elevated to power by early choice of the people, seem to have not been often brilliant, but distinguished by a ponderous sobriety rather than activity of intellect. They had fortitude and self-reliance, and in a time of difficulty or peril, stood up for the welfare of their state like a line of cliffs against a tempestuous tide. The traits of character here indicated were well represented in the square cast of countenance and large physical development of the new colonial magistrates. So far as the demeanour of natural authority was concerned, the mother country need not have been ashamed to see these foremost men of an actual democracy adopted into the House of Peers, or made the Privy Council of the Sovereign. Next in order to the magistrates came the young and eminently distinguished divine, from whose lips the religious discourse of the anniversary was expected. His was the profession, at that era, which intellectual ability displayed itself far more than in political life. For, leaving a higher motive out of the question, it offered inducements powerful enough in the almost worshipping respect of the community to win the most aspiring aspiration into its service. Even political power, as in the case of Increase Mather, was within grasp of a successful priest. It was the observation of those who beheld him now that never since Mr. Dimmesdale first set his foot on the New England shore had he exhibited such energy as was seen in the gait and air with which he kept his pace in the procession. There was no feebleness of step as at other times. His frame was not bent, nor did his hand rest ominously upon his heart. Yet, if the clergyman were rightly viewed, his strength seemed not of the body. It might be spiritual and imparted to him by angelic ministrations. It might be the exhilaration of the potent cordial which is distilled only in the furnace glow of earnest and long-continued thought. Or perchance his sensitive temperament was invigorated by the loud and piercing music that swelled heavenward and uplifted him on its ascending wave. Nevertheless, so abstracted was his look, it might be questioned whether Mr. Dimmesdale even heard the music. There was his body, moving onward, and with an unaccustomed force. But where was his mind? Far and deep in its own region, busying itself with preternatural activity to marshal a procession of stately thoughts that were soon to issue thence. And so he saw nothing, heard nothing, knew nothing, 
of what was around him, but the spiritual element took up the feeble frame and carried it along, unconscious of the burden, and conversing it to a spirit-like self. Men of uncommon intellect who have grown morbid possess this occasional power of mighty effort, into which they throw the life of many days, and then are lifeless for as many more. Hester Prynne, gazing steadfastly at the clergyman, felt a dreary influence come over her, but wherefore or whence she knew not, unless that he seemed so remote from her sphere and utterly beyond her reach. One glance of recognition, she had imagined, must needs pass between them. She thought of the dim forest, with its little dwell of solitude and love and anguish, and the mossy tree trunk, where, sitting hand in hand, they had mingled their sad and passionate talk with the melancholy murmur of the brook. How deeply had they known each other then? And was this the man? She hardly knew him now. He, moving proudly past, enveloped, as it were, in the rich music with the procession of majestic and venerable fathers. He, so unattainable in his worldly position, and still more so in that far vista of his unsympathising thoughts, through which she now beheld him. Her spirit sank with the idea that it must have all been an illusion, and that, vividly as she had dreamed it, there could be no real bond betwixt the clergyman and herself. And thus much of woman was there in Hester that she could scarcely forgive him, least of all now, when the heavy footstep of the approaching fate might be heard, nearer, 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 for being able so completely to withdraw himself from their mutual world, while she groped darkly and stretched forth her cold hands and found him not. Pearl either saw and responded to her mother's feelings, or herself felt the remoteness and the intangibility that had fallen around the minister. While the procession passed, the child was uneasy, fluttering up and down like a bird on the point of taking flight. When the whole had gone by, she looked up into Hester's face. Mother, she said, was that the same minister that kissed me by the brook? Hold thy peace, dear little Pearl whispered her mother. We must not always talk in the marketplace of what happens to us in the forest. I could not be sure that it was he. So strange he looked, continued the child. Else I would have run to him and bid him kiss me now, before all the people, even as he did yonder, among the dark old trees. What would the minister have said, mother? Would he have clasped his hand over his heart and scowled on me and bid me agone? What should he say, Pearl? answered Hester, save that it was no time to kiss, and that kisses are not to be given in the marketplace. Well for thee, foolish child, that thou didst not speak to him. Another shade of the same sentiment in reference to Mr. Dimmesdale was expressed by a person whose eccentricities, or insanity as we should term it, led her to do what few townspeople would have ventured on, to begin a conversation with the wearer of the scarlet letter in public. It was Mistress Hibbins, who, arrayed in a great magnificence, with a triple ruff, a broided stomacher, a gown of rich velvet, and a gold-headed cane, had come forth to see the procession. As this ancient lady had the renown, which subsequently cost her no lesser price than her life, of being a principal actor in all the works of necromancy that were continually going forward, the crowd gave way before her, and seemed to fear the touch of her garment, as if it carried the plague among its gorgeous folds. Seen in conjecture with Hester Prynne, kindly as so many now felt towards the latter, the dread inspired by Mistress Hibbins was doubled, and caused a general movement from that part of the marketplace in which the two women stood. 
Now what immortal imaginations could conceive it? whispered the old lady confidently to Hester. Yonder divine man, that saint on earth, as the people uphold him to be, and as, I must needs say, he really looks. Who now that saw him in the procession would think how little while it is since he went forth out of his study, chewing a Hebrew text of scripture in his mouth, I warrant, to take an airing into the forest. <laughs> we know what that means, Hester Prynne. But truly, forsooth, I find it hard to believe him the same man. Many a church member saw I, walking behind the music that danced in the same measure with me, when somebody was a fiddler. And, it might be, an Indian powwow, or a Lapland wizard changing hands with us. That is but a trifle when a woman knows the world. But this minister... Couldst thou surely tell, Hester, whether he was the same man that encountered thee on the forest path? Madam, I do not know of what you speak, answered Hester Prynne, feeling Mistress Hibbins to be of infirm mind, yet strangely startled and awe-stricken by the confidence with which she had affirmed a personal connection between so many persons, herself among them, and the evil one. It is not for me to talk lightly of a learned and pious minister of the world like Reverend Mr. Dimmersdale. Fie, woman, fie, cried the old lady, shaking her finger at Hester. Dost thou think I have been in the forest so many times, and have yet no skill to judge who else has been there? Yea, they no leaf in the wild garlands which they wore while they danced be left in their hair. I know thee, Hester, for I behold the token. We may all see it in the sunshine, and it glows like a red name in the dark. Thou wearest it openly, so there need be no question about that. But this minister, let me tell thee in thine ear, when the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and sealed, so shy of owing to the bond as is the Reverend Mr. Dimmersdale, he hath a way of ordering matters so that the mark will be disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of all the world. What is it that the minister seeks to hide with his hand always over his heart? Ha, huh? Hester Prynne? What is it, good Mistress Hibbins? eagerly asked Little Pearl. Hast thou seen it? No matter, darling, responded Mistress Hibbins, making Pearl a profound reverence. Thou thyself will see it, one time or another. They say, child, thou art of a lineage of the Prince of Air. Wilt thou ride with me some fine night to see thy father? Then thou shalt know wherefore the minister keeps his hand over his heart. Laughing so shrilly that all the marketplace could hear her, the weird old gentlewoman took her departure. By this time, the preliminary prayer had been offered in the meeting house, and the accents of the Reverend Mr. Dimmersdale were heard commencing his discourse. An irresistible feeling kept Heston near the spot. As the sacred edifice was too much thronged to admit another auditor, she took up her position close beside the scaffold of the pillory. It was sufficient in proximity to bring the whole sermon to her ears, in the shape of an indistinct but varied murmur and flow of the minister's very peculiar voice. This vocal organ was in itself a rich endowment, inasmuch as the listener, comprehending nothing of the language in which the preacher spoke, 
might still have been swayed to and fro by the mere tone and cadence. Like all other music, it breathes passion and pathos, and emotions high or tender in a tongue native to the human heart, wherever educated. Muffled as the sound was by its passage through the church walls, Hester Prynne listened with such intentness and sympathised so intimately that the sermon had throughout a meaning for her, entirely apart from its indistinguishable words. These, perhaps, if more distinctly heard, might have been only a grosser medium and have clogged the spiritual sense. Now she caught the low undertone, as of the wind sinking down to repose itself, then ascended with it as it rose through progressive gradations of sweetness and power, till its volume seemed to envelop her with an atmosphere of awe and solemn grandeur. And yet, majestic as the voice sometimes became, there was forever in it an essential character of plaintiveness. A loud or low expression of anguish, the whisper, or the shriek as it might be conceived, of suffering humanity that touched a sensibility in every bosom. At times, this deep strain of pathos was all that could be heard, and scarcely heard, sighing amid a desolate silence. But even when the minister's voice grew high and commanding, when it gushed irrepressibly upward, when it assumed its utmost breadth and power, so overfilling the church as to burst its way through the solid walls and diffuse itself in the open air, still, if the auditor listened intently, and for the purpose, he could detect the same cry of pain. What was it? The complaint of a human heart? Sorrow-laden? Perchance guilty, telling its secret, whether of guilt or sorrow, to the great heart of mankind? Beseeching its sympathy or forgiveness, at every moment, in each accent, and never in vain? It was this profound and continual undertone that gave the clergyman his most appropriate power. During all this time, Hester stood, statue-like, at the foot of the scaffold. If the minister's voice had not kept her there, there would, nevertheless, have been an inevitable magnetism in that spot when she dated the first hour of her ignominy. There was a sense within her, too ill-defined to be made a thought, but weighing heavily on her mind, that the whole orb of life, both before and after, was connected with this spot, as with the one point that gave it unity. Little Pearl, meanwhile, had quitted her mother's side and was playing at her own will about the marketplace. She made the sombre crowd cheerful by a erratic and glistening ray, even as a bird of bright plumage illuminates a whole tree of dusky foliage by darting to and fro, half seen and half concealed amid the twilight of the clustering leaves. She had an undulating, but oftentimes sharp and irregular movement. It indicated the restless vivacity of her spirit, which today was doubtably indefatigable in its tiptoe dance, because it was played upon and vibrated with her mother's disquietude. Whenever Pearl saw anything to excite her ever-active and wandering curiosity, she flew thitherward, and, as we might say, seized upon that man or thing as her own property, so far as she desired it, but without yielding the minutest degree of control over her emotions in requital. The Puritans looked on, and, if they smiled, were nonetheless inclined to pronounce the child a demon's offspring, from the indescribable charm of beauty and eccentricity that shone through her little figure and sparkled with its activity. She ran and looked the wild Indian in the face, and he grew conscious of a nature wilder than his own. Thence, with native audacity, but still with a reserve as characteristic, she flew into the midst of a group of mariners, the swathy-cheeked wild men of the ocean, as the Indians were of the land. 
and they gazed wonderingly and admiringly at Pearl, as if a flake of the sea foam had taken the shape of a little maid and were gifted with a soul of the sea fire that flashes beneath the prow in the night time. One of these seafaring men, the shipmaster indeed who had spoken to Hester Prynne, was so smitten with Pearl's aspect that he attempted to lay hands upon her with a purpose to snatch a kiss. Finding it as impossible to touch her as to catch a hummingbird in the air, he took from his hat the gold chain that twisted about it and threw it to the child. Pearl immediately twinned it around her neck and waist with such a happy skill that, once seen there, it became part of her and it was difficult to imagine her without it. Thy mother is yonder woman with the scarlet letter, said the seaman. Would thou carry her a message from me? If the message pleases me, I will, answered Pearl. Then tell her, rejoined he, that I spake again with a blacker-visaged, hump-shouldered old doctor, and he engages to bring his friend, the gentleman, she wots of, aboard with him. So let thy mother take no thought, save for herself and thee. Would thou tell her this, thou witch-baby? Mistress Hibbin says my father is the prince of the air, cried Pearl with a naughty smile. If thou callest me that ill name, I shall tell him of thee, and he will chase thy ship with a tempest. Pursuing a zigzag of course across the marketplace, the child returned to her mother and communicated what the mariner had said. Hester's strong, calm, steadfastly enduring spirit almost sank at last on beholding this dark and grim countenance of an inevitable doom which, at the moment when a passage seemed to open for the minister and herself out of their labyrinth of misery, showed itself with an unrelenting smile right in the midst of their path. With her mind harassed by the terrible perplexity which the shipmaster's intelligence involved her, she was also subjected to another trial. There were many people present from the country round about who had often heard of the Scarlet Letter and to whom it had been made terrific by a hundred false or exaggerated rumours but who had never beheld it with their own bodily eyes. These, after exhausting other modes of amusement, now thronged about Hester Prynne with rude and boorish intrusiveness. Unscrupulous as it was, however, it could not bring them nearer than a circuit of several yards. At that distance, they accordingly stood, fixed there by the centrifugal force of the repugnance which the mystic symbol inspired. The whole gang of sailors, likewise, observing from the press of spectators, and learning the purport of the scarlet letter, came and thrust their sunburnt and desperado-looking faces into the ring. Even the Indians were affected by a sort of cold shadow of the white man's curiosity, and, gliding through the crowd, fastened their snake-like black eyes on Hester's bosom, conceiving, perhaps, that the wearer of this brilliantly embroidered badge must needs be a personage of high dignity among her people. Lastly, the inhabitants of the town, their own interest in this worn-out subject languidly reviving itself by sympathy with what they saw others feel, lounged idly to the same quarter and tormented Hester Prynne, perhaps more than all the rest, with their cool, well-acquainted gaze at her familiar shame. Hester saw and recognised the self-same faces of that group of matrons who had awaited her forthcoming from the prison door seven years ago, all save one, the youngest and only compassionate among them, whose burial robe she had since made. At the final hour, when she was so soon to fling aside the burning letter, it had strangely become the centre of more remark and excitement, and was thus made to see her breast more painfully than at any time since the first day she put it on. While Hester stood in that magic circle of ignominy, where the cunning cruelty of her sentence seemed to have fixed her forever, the admirable preacher 
was looking down from the sacred pulpit upon an audience whose very inmost spirits had yielded to his control. The sainted minister of the church. The woman of the scarlet letter in the marketplace. What imagination would have been irreverent enough to surmise that the same scorching stigma was on them both? Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening to our podcast, please leave a review. It uh, is the best way to get this in front of as many people as possible. And reading them really makes my day. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.